Welcome to Bayou City. So glad that you're here this morning. would love for you to pull out your copy of the scriptures, whether that is electronic or actual physical copy in your hands. If you don't have a physical Bible, we would love to give you one. Uh, just stop by one of the tables out in the lobby, pick one up. Um, also pull out your listening guide because I really would uh, love for you to write some things down this morning. I think that would be helpful in remembering them as we kind of get back to the pace of life after these few minutes together. And then I also want to encourage you, on the back of that listing guide, there's an invitation to Core Night, which is tonight at 6 p.m. right here in this room. If you've never been to Core Night, we would love for you to come. Uh, it is our kind of membership gathering, and we would love for you to consider being an official member of Bayou City for two reasons. Number one, I think it's helpful for you to say, I am declaring myself as a part of this family. And then it's helpful to us because the scripture tells us that we are not a whole family, without your gifts, your talent, your ability in the mix here. And when you become a member, uh, it lets us know the new gifts that have come to our church, and then it helps us to put those in play, which will make us more effective in reaching people and equipping people to make a difference in this world. So really, really would mean a lot for to us if you would come tonight, plus it's fajita dinner, and uh, you know you look at your wallet, it's Christmas time, money is tight, so come and have fajitas with us tonight for free, pretend to be interested in the information, and uh, everything will be fine. Uh, but really, really do want you to come, so really have two options today, A, you can pay attention to me, or you can be on your phone registering right now uh, for tonight, uh, but you can't check Facebook and you can't check Twitter. Plus, it's you know 10 o'clock in the morning. There's nothing interesting happening uh, anyway. So take that Bible of yours, turn to Matthew chapter 1. One of my favorite Christmas traditions growing up from birth to about 18 years old was to be a part of my hometown's live nativity pageant. It was held at the fairgrounds and there was a valley there in the fairgrounds. I know that we don't know what a valley is here in Houston, but there was a little bit of elevation, not a lot, a little bit of elevation, and then it dipped down and some more elevation. And on one side, uh, we acted out the nativity. There were probably 100 plus people acting it out. There was a narrator, there was a choir singing the Christmas songs, and all that was happening on one side of the valley. On the other side of the valley, people were parked in their cars because this is Missouri in the winter, which means that you you know, need a coat for sure. And, uh, and so people would stay in their cars, have their cars on, have the heat on, and watch the nativity play out in front of them. So being a part of it really from birth meant I got to play every role possible. You know, even got to play Jesus uh, one time, which is like the pinnacle of all, like I quit acting after that. I was like, this is the top. (laughs) Talent may have also played a role uh, in the quitting, but I was Jesus. I I got to be one of the travelers. You know, those are the people who were moving from place to place because of the census that Caesar Augustus had ordered. That's why Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem. So you got the people traveling from one little wood building to another one, representing that census, uh, got to be different levels of angels. And, uh, but my favorite role was about when I was 16 years old, I got to be the one responsible for making sure the star moved from down at the bottom of the valley to the top of the valley. There was this crank and there was a cue that happened, uh, that let me know when it was time to crank. And so everything went dark right before it was my turn to crank the star. And, uh, then the choir began to sing, we three Kings of Orient are, And then the star would light up. Now, at that point, everything is dark. So the audience doesn't really know what's happening next and where it's happening out on this big field. But as soon as the star lit up and I would begin to crank, all attention focused on it. And that's what we want these Advent Sundays to be. 
Because there's lots of different things that we can focus on in this Christmas season. And most of them are good. We can focus on one another, celebrating together. You've got work parties, you've got friend parties, you've got this party, that party, all kinds of parties, being together, and that's fun. We can also focus on giving gifts. A few of us will focus on receiving gifts. We can focus on uh, charitable acts. We, we can focus on our Christmas traditions. Oh, we do this every year at this time. This is our, our thing. And what I want these Sundays to be, and all those are good things, is to be that star lighting up in the darkness. Oh, here's where my attention should go. This is where my focus should be, the anticipation and arrival of Jesus' original coming. And we're going to use questions to navigate through this Advent season. Next week, we're going to ask a question. You can see it in your listening guide. Why was Jesus born a king? Mary and Joseph were not royal in any way. They were just very ordinary people. Why was Jesus born a king and why was that important? The week after that, we're asking, why do the poor seem to be at the center of the Christmas story? Again, Mary and Joseph, working people, hand-to-mouth kind of people. You have Anna living in the temple who... Uh, was a widow and just spent all of her time at church. That's where she lived. She had, had nothing. You have the shepherds who were the blue collarists of all blue collar people. Even in our day, there seems to be more attention given to the poor at Christmas time than any other time. Why is that? Uh, the question we're going to answer today, I think, is the most important question of the Christmas season. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be born? I don't know if you thought about that. Why did God send Jesus, his son, to take on human flesh, become a human being? Why was that necessary? Why couldn't he wave his magic God wand and just fix all the problems that needed to be fixed by Jesus coming? Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, helps us to answer that. Very simple but important question. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David... The angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 21, you see it in your listening guide. This is the answer to the question. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be born? And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was born to save his people from their sins. Now, why do we need salvation from our sins? You'll notice on the left-hand column of that same page is a genealogy. That's how Matthew starts his gospel. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And it ends in verse 16, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And we're going to use this genealogy to help us understand why it was important that Jesus come, be born to save us from our sins. Because here's the reality. It's easier to see sins in the life of someone else than it is to see sins in our own life. I mean, never underestimate our ability to be a hypocrite. 
Just in the last week, Matt Lauer, host of NBC programs, was fired because of allegations and evidence of sexual harassment, sexual assault. Did you know that just a few months ago, he interviewed Bill O'Reilly, who was fired from Fox News because of allegations and evidence of sexual harassment and sexual assault? And he was hammering him. I mean, do you think that it ran across Matt Lauer's mind? You know, I'm guilty of these exact same things. Never underestimate our ability to be a hypocrite. It is always easier, in Jesus' words, to see a speck in someone else's eye than to see the log in our own eye. So we're going to use this genealogy in the left-hand column to help us understand today why it was necessary and important to us that Jesus be born and save us from our sins. We need salvation from our sins for a few reasons. First, you see this in your listening guide, because sin disrupts and destroys our relationship with God. Sin disrupts and destroys our relationship with God. First, it does it eternally. That's what Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We were born enemies to God because of sin. We were born outside of his family, and only by the grace and mercy seen in Jesus are we allowed to be inside his family. But it also destroys and disrupts our everyday relationship with God. Speaking of that genealogy, in verse 6, it says, Jesse was the father of King David, and David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, King David is the hero of heroes in the Old Testament, David and Goliath. But he made some really, really terrible decisions. But even in his bad decision-making, his heart for God was always there. And what he would, when he would sin, he would repent and change and wanted to be reconciled with God. His son Solomon became king in his place. God came to Solomon. You may remember this story. He says, Solomon, what do, you, what do you want me to give you? Ask me whatever you want and I'll, I'll give it to you. And Solomon, you remember, said, I need wisdom. My father was a great king. Now I'm the king. I don't know how to lead these people God was so moved by his request for wisdom that he made him the wisest man who has ever lived and then added a bunch of stuff on top. He said to Solomon, you could have asked for wealth, but you didn't. You asked for wisdom, so I'm going to give you wisdom and I'm going to give you wealth. So he's known as the wisest person who's ever lived and one of the wealthiest people who have ever lived. It was under Solomon's reign that the temple in Jerusalem was built, which was at the time the most beautiful, elaborate magnificent building on planet earth. And when they dedicated that temple, you can read this story in the Old Testament, the glory of God came, God's presence, literal, physical, tangible, visible, came and dwelt in that temple. In fact, the ministers who were there inside the temple had to get outside because they couldn't see because of the glory of God. All happening under Solomon's reign. But he had a a weakness, and weakness is... uh, That's too weak of a word. He had an addiction to sensuality and sexuality. And so the scripture says he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That was bad. That was bad. Just in case any of you are considering that today. I feel like we should just end the message right there. It's bad. That was bad. What made it even worse is 
these women that he married were not Israelite women who worshipped the one true God. Uh, they had all kinds of other gods that they worshipped, and they wanted to worship those gods in Jerusalem. So Solomon said, I love you, and you are my wife, and I will build you a temple, or I will make sure that the idol that you worship is, has a statue somewhere around. And the scripture says that by the end of Solomon's reign, he had walked away from God. Because that's what sin does. It steals from us. It steals from our relationship with God. The main thing it steals is our want to. If I ask you today, what do you need to do? What would God ask you to do? One of the first things we would say is, uh, well, I need to pray more. All of us know we need to pray more. The problem isn't that, we, isn't that we don't know we should do that. It's that we don't want to do that, honestly. I don't want to pray. I want to watch TV. I don't want to pray. I want to listen to another podcast. I don't want to pray. I want to sit here on the couch and do nothing. I don't want to pray. I I want to make sure my kids are involved in some other thing in their schedule. Our want to has been stolen, and it's stolen by sin somewhere else in our lives. Because we have a habitual pattern of gossip or slander or hardness of heart. It steals our want to because sin disrupts and destroys our relationship with God. It also destroys and disrupts our relationship with ourselves. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Uh, The name Jacob literally means uh, liar. It means deceiver, deceitful. I mean, what a terrible set of parents he had. You know, It's like naming your kid a name that means loser and then saying, but I really like the ring of it, you know. And Jacob grew up into a liar, someone who was deceitful. He was always scheming. When you read his stories, he's always working an angle. Right? So he worked an angle to steal his older brother Esau's birthright. He worked an angle in partnership with his mother to steal his older brother Esau's family blessing. But because he did that, he had to flee, he had to run away. So to get the family blessing, he had to run away from his family. Then he ended up with his uncle, and he was always working the angles with his uncle. Long story short, he had to flee his uncle back towards his brother. And when you read the stories of Jacob, you see so much potential in his life. And God working powerfully around him, even in the midst of his deceit, but he made his life more painful than it needed to be. Because sin disrupts and destroys our relationship with ourselves. It steals our happiness. It steals our joy. It steals our peace. I mean, you think about marriage. I mean, um, every couple has expectations for one another. When I do premarital counsel, uh, I give a test to the future bride and future groom a list of expectations and questions. Uh, who's going to be responsible for taking out the trash? Who's going to be the one that uh, makes sure the bills get paid? Who's the one that vacuums? Who's the one that's going to cook? Just little you know, nitty-gritty stuff of marriage. And I make the guy take the test over here, and the lady take the test over here, and then we come back, and their answers are hilarious. <laughs> I thought you were going to be the one to take out the trash. I always saw my mom take out the trash. That's why I loved her so much, and I just expected you would do that too. And the lady says, my dad was always a gentleman, always taking out the trash. And that's the kind of man that I wanted to marry. And so they get on the same page, but as soon as you get on the same page in your marriage, you immediately jump off that page 
And so it is possible that your husband, one time in your marriage, has not met your expectations. Maybe never in your marriage, but I'm guessing at least one time. You've disappointed one another. You've not been giving each other what you need. And what happens for most of us? You sit down at the kitchen table and you say, I love you so much. But I just want to share that uh, I thought that we had communicated about this, that this is what I was really hoping for and needing from you. And I just want to bring it to your attention. And let's pray together. No, who does that? No one has ever done that. (laughs) Not even people who are counselors do that in their own marriage. No, you do what normal people do, which is like, well, she's not going to meet my expectations. Then I'm not going to do something that she wants from me. Then you just hold out. (laughs) Freeze one another out. See who has the most endurance in being the worst spouse in your marriage. And what happens? What happens is as that cycle perpetuates, you just get further and further and further and further and further and further from the very thing that you wanted in the first place. Because sin, it steals from us. It gives, and then it takes away, and then it takes more away. It destroys and disrupts our relationship with ourselves. And number three, it disrupts and destroys our relationship with other people. Verse seven, it says Solomon, who we mentioned earlier, was the father of Rehoboam. Most of us don't know that much about Rehoboam, but he was the king, Solomon's son, right after Solomon died. And the people came to Rehoboam and said, your father was a great king. He was the wisest man who ever lived wealthiest man who ever lived, but he was really hard on us. He had high demands for his people and the people that worked for him. And so can you imagine this? The, the people come to Rehoboam and said, well, you, can you dial that down? Can you just, can you be a little bit easier on us? And so Rehoboam gets some counsel. He gets some counsel from wise, trusted people. Yes, you should do this. Your father was hard on people. It's going to go better for you if you just dial that back a little bit. But then as young men do, Uh, They get wise counsel, and then they seek out the counsel that they want to hear. And so Rehoboam surrounded himself with a bunch of yes people, people uh, who wanted to please him, who wanted to encourage him and had no wisdom. And they said, no, you need to turn it up. If they thought your father was hard on them, just wait until they get a load of you. Your father was this. You can be even more than that. So turn up the heat. So Rehoboam does that. He's hard on his people. So you know what happens? Half of the nation says, we don't want to be your people anymore. They revolt, they rebel. Where there once was one people of God, Israel, now there were two. Judah, with their king Rehoboam, and Israel, an entire new nation. Sin disrupts and destroys our relationship with other people. Because when we make sinful decisions, that is not just a decision that will yield consequences for ourselves, it will yield consequences for other people. A decision to sin is a decision for you and it's a decision for someone else. I read this week that there's one uh, pornographic website. If you have uh, little kids, maybe just cover their ears here for just a second. There's one pornographic website, just one, that last year streamed 92 billion pornographic videos. Just one. 
If you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around that math, that is 12 videos per human on planet Earth. Just one website. That same website in that same year had 23 billion unique visitors. 23 billion separate people in the world went to this one website to view and see pornographic videos. That's one, that's 729 people per second last year. Those 23 billion, they assumed that they were making a decision in isolation just for themselves. Some of them even thought about what the consequences would be if they got caught or but they were only thinking about the consequences for themselves. But that was not a decision made in isolation. That decision affects a lot of people. There are consequences for their spouse. There's consequences for their future spouse. Consequences for their children. Consequences for those people who produce those videos. Consequences for women who are stuck in dark places in the sex trade here in Houston and around the world because there's a direct link between the amount of pornography viewed and the amount of human beings who are traded in the sex market. 23 billion people thinking that they are making a decision in isolation when in fact they were making a decision for even more people than that. You're an I. Our our decision to sin, whatever that sin would be, is not just a decision for us. It's a decision for the people around you. Some that you know, some that you will never meet. But someone else is always bearing the consequences to my sin and to your sin. And when those consequences show up, there's crisis in the relationship. And you can see how relationships are disrupted and destroyed. Because of sin. So how does Jesus' birth actually save us from sin? You see in your listening guide, because his birth made possible his death, which made possible his resurrection, which all made possible our salvation. Because his birth made possible his death, and his death made possible his resurrection, And all together, they make possible our salvation. That's what Romans chapter 6 says. It says in verse 11, or verse 10, When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Let's read that again. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. It says that Jesus died to break the power of sin. In 1999, I went to Africa. And while we were there, we went to Queen Elizabeth's National Park. And there in the National Park, you go on a safari. You get in a Jeep and you just start driving around. We saw a herd of elephants, drove right through the middle of a herd of elephants. We saw what had to be at least 200,000 flamingos. They're just hanging out on one leg, just like you'd see it uh, on TV. We saw hyenas. We saw every possible thing. But you see all of those things, even as great and majestic as they are, you see all of that stuff on the hunt, not literal hunt, but on the lookout for one particular animal, and that's a lion. 
You don't even have to want to be looking for a lion when you go to Queen Elizabeth's uh, National Park. But as soon as you get in the Jeep, that's the only thing that you want to see. So we're hunting for lions. And we find some. And then you're like, I wish we had not hunted for lions. Because they are huge. Dangerous. And we got close. Like closer than, like too close. And we said to the guide, this feels wrong. This feels wrong. Because when you're there in the presence of an actual lion who where there's no fence between you and them, you realize they could kill you. If, if they Just for fun, they could kill you. You may say, well, I CrossFit a lot. You don't CrossFit this much. <laughs> you don't. They're huge. And they're faster than you. You're like, well, I'm pretty fast. You're not this fast. Their claws are humongous. And we saw... The pride, the whole pride, there was a group of ladies over here and the cubs were all uh, among them, just like you see on TV. And then there was the guy hanging out by himself doing nothing. Ladies were like, yeah, amen. That's what my life is like. I got some unmet expectations in my marriage right now. I'm currently freezing out my husband as we speak. We've come to church. We've not yet talked today. And so the male lion's hanging out over here and the lady lions are hanging out of the kids. And it's just this powerful, like you just know, you just know that this is dangerous. The guy was like, don't worry, they've already eaten today. And you're like, yeah, they probably ate a person who got this close to them earlier in the day. I've also been to the zoo, I've seen a lion in the zoo. No feeling of fear, though, at the zoo. The lion in the zoo, just as dangerous as the lion in Africa. But the lion in the zoo has no authority because there's a fence there. There's a barrier. Same power, same size, same natural desire to kill. One has all the authority in the world and the other has zero. So when it says that Jesus broke the power of sin, we may say, no, he didn't. Because look, look around, look around, pull up your news right now on your phone. I don't see that sin is still having its effect but sin doesn't have the authority that it once did. Oh, you can go to the zoo and jump into the habitat and see how dangerous that lion is. But you have to jump in. So sin will kill you, will bring you down, will steal from you, will disrupt your life if you jump into its habitat. That sin will strangle you to death. It will wrap its claws around you. But you have to be the one to put your neck there. Jesus broke the authority of sin. And then it says uh, he died to break that power. But he has resurrection life. And that life, he lives to the glory of God. See, today is not just about empty our lives from sin. It is empty our lives from sin so that we too can live for the glory of God because Jesus shared all that with you. He shared his death with you and he shares his resurrection with you. That's what Romans chapter six says earlier, talking about our baptism, that when we were baptized, we were buried with Christ. We died with Christ. That's the picture. When you go underneath the water, you died with Christ. This is why baptism is so important. We're actually baptizing people next Sunday. And if you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to do it because it is the sign that you are with Jesus, that you are sharing with Jesus. His death 
and his resurrection. And when you come up out of the water, it's just as Jesus came up out of that grave and now you've been given resurrection life. And if he used his resurrection life to the glory of God, you and I use our resurrection life to the glory of God. That nativity pageant I was telling you about earlier, there was, there's this one moment and it is, I think, the pinnacle of the pageant where, where the choir begins to sing a, a chorus of Handel's Messiah, you know, hallelujah, hallelujah, you know, that part. And I mean, this is like, you know, Southwest Missouri choir style, you know, so it's not like we recorded it and put it on iTunes, but it still was powerful. And then all these kids come out, they're the angels and they're not dressed up elaborate. They're wearing white smocks with white gloves. And when they come around the shepherds, they're supposed to twinkle their fingers, representing the glory and majesty of God. Just a little, little happy jazz hands from little kids gathered around some shepherds in some burlap robes. And I, I was a part of that. I was an angel at one stage of my life. I was a shepherd at another stage of my life because the shepherds got to play in the fire, which is pretty cool. And, and even with what little glory that was, Southwest Missouri, average at best choir singing a very famous song with a bunch of little kids representing angels, there still had this, this small amount of glory to it. And, and you wouldn't sin in that moment. You wouldn't in that moment when the choir is cranked up and the angels are doing their jazz hands think, you know, I'm going to think some lustful thought right now, or I'm going to think about some person that I hate. I'm going to plan revenge. You wouldn't do that. You wouldn't take a beer out and start working your way towards getting drunk. You wouldn't do that because even this little amount of glory was enough to ward off sin. So we're not just emptying ourselves today of bad decisions. We need to fill our lives with the glory of God because the more glory in your life, the less you want to sin. Because we're full of what we were made to be, created to be, this resurrection life that Jesus shares with us. And that's why Jesus had to be born. So he could save his people from their sins, not just people on the left-hand column of Matthew chapter one, a bunch of people that you never heard of that lived a long time ago, not just those people, but these people. So Jesus, we recognize that you are our savior and that salvation doesn't happen without the resurrection, which doesn't happen without your death, which doesn't happen without your birth. So we celebrate your birth today. Why don't you take a second to pray? Just ask God directly, are are you saying anything to me today? Is there anything that has my name on it this morning? Help us respond to that by the power of the Spirit living inside of us. In Jesus' name. Just stare to your feet.